This is a Federal News Network podcast. They do the day-to-day legal work of the United States, and they didn't take the jobs to become rich lawyers. But the assistant U.S. attorneys, career civil servants, are asking Congress to end what the attorneys feel is unfair pay disparity compared to other lawyers in the Justice Department. For more, we turn to the president of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys, Larry Leiser. Mr. Leiser, good to have you on. Tom, thanks for having me. I am currently an assistant United States attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, but talking with you today is solely in my capacity as president of the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys, and nothing that I say or suggest should be considered to be the position of the Department of Justice. Okay, and by the way, that association is an association. You're not really a labor union, are you? We are not a labor union. We are precluded from being a union, in fact. Okay. First of all, give us a sense of what the job is all about, because I guess you're a notch below the politically appointed U.S. attorneys, and so you kind of actually do the work? That's right. In our country, we have 93 presidentially appointed U.S. attorneys. They come and go with the administration for the most part. Assistant United States attorneys are career professional civil servants of the federal government. We are the nation's prosecutors, and we also are the nation's civil attorneys in defending the United States in court. As prosecutors, we work with the FBI, DEA. All the law enforcement associations at the federal level have to go through assisting United States attorneys to get search warrants, complaints, to get cases indicted, obviously to get cases tried, to get wiretaps. And we also work frequently with state and local officials who become part of federal task force on major criminal investigations. And are you regular Title V employees under the GS system? No, not under the GS system. And this is where the pay disparity comes into play. Almost every federal employee is paid under the so-called GS system. We're paid on a system called administratively determined, the AD system. So our colleagues who work at the Department of Justice who are not assisting United States attorneys, although they're attorneys, they perform in different tasks and functions at the Department of Justice. They're all paid under the GS system. And we're finding out that there is a significant disparity, especially in the early years of comparing experience with years out of law school, where our colleagues around the country who are our nation's prosecutors are paid significantly less than other attorneys in our own agency. And we think that's just not fair, and we'd like to get the Congress to change that. We've asked the department to change that, and they could administratively do so, switch us from the AD system to the GS system, but have not done so to date. So we're turning to the Congress in hopes that they will recognize this disparity and the unfairness of having our nation's prosecutors working for the same agency where other lawyers are paid significantly more, especially in the early years of service. Yeah, give us an example of the pay disparity, for example, someone that might have been out of law school five years, say, and they are a assistant U.S. attorney versus a lawyer somewhere else in justice. What do the pay scales look like? Well, it, it depends on the years out of law school and the years of experience, but it can be anywhere from uh, twenty to $40,000. In fact, I have lost because I'm officed in Alexandria. Many of my colleagues have left our office to go over to the Department of Justice to immediately pick up on the GS schedule 20, 30, in some instances, more money in salary. 
Conversely, we have department attorneys who want to go back to their home state as AUSAs and have to take a twenty to $30,000 pay cut in order to do so. So it's clearly a situation that needs to be resolved. And again, we're not asking for more money as AUSAs. We just like to get the same money as our colleagues at DOJ and, quite frankly, every lawyer, with the exception of the SEC, that works for the government under the GS system. We're speaking with Larry Lizer. He is the president of the National Association of Assistant United States Attorneys. So are you asking Congress to make that legal switch to GS or simply to somehow mandate the administrative determination that you should get more money concurrent with what you would be getting if you were in GS? We're happy to do it one way or the other, quite frankly. We think switching to the GS system is just simple and clear cut. Adjusting the AD system, which is antiquated, and quite frankly, very confusing. The adjustment could be made there to have parity, but we think switching to the GS system is just simpler and cleaner, and we hope the Congress will explore that and make the change. And you've written to the uh, chairman and ranking member of the Subcommittee on Commerce, Justice, Science, and Related Agencies in the House. Any response yet so far? Not yet. We're still working on it. Congress is very busy at this time with uh, other matters. We understand that ours is not high on their priority list, but we hope that with time they'll recognize that this is something that should be fixed in fairness and will give us the opportunity to go back to them and get them to make the switch. In the letter, you cite the fact that in the employee viewpoint surveys every year, the agencies rank pretty well, except for that area of salary. So the job and the work are satisfying, aren't they? Absolutely. Every AUSA, if you ask those of us who leave to either go over to the department and make more money or many go into private practice, will tell you that the best job they ever had was being an assistant United States attorney to the man and woman. We're really honored to be the nation's gatekeeper of our justice system. Nobody's going to get prosecuted in our country without going through an assistant United States attorney or another DOJ attorney. We control, exclusively control, the most powerful weapon in the federal law enforcement arsenal, which is the grand jury. And we're all proud to be able to make sure that the innocent are protected and that the guilty are prosecuted. It's a great honor. It's also a great responsibility. And attorneys general come and go, and now we have Mr. Garland there at the top of the Justice Department. Have you raised the issue with him and his predecessors? We certainly have over the last several years, and the department has finally acknowledged that there is a disparity in pay, but they haven't taken any steps to correct that disparity. All right, so now you're kind of on wait. The ball is in the court of Congress at this point. Well, actually, the ball is in the court of the Department of Justice. As I mentioned earlier, the AG could, by his own authority, switch us from AD to the GS schedule, but has not yet decided to do that, although we've asked, and therefore we're going to the Congress in the hopes that they'll make the fix. It seems like a good year to try to push for this, since the administration is kind of slathering money over all the agencies, pretty much. Yeah, it does seem an appropriate time for us. And again, we're not asking to be paid more. We just want to make the same salary as our attorney colleagues at DOJ and other attorneys throughout the government. And by the way, how many of there are you? And how is morale generally, given the conditions, the work itself, the conditions, and the pay? There's about 6,300 assistant United States attorneys throughout the country. We're in 94 U.S. attorneys' offices throughout the country. On this issue of pay, it is a morale issue because we work extremely hard. We don't get overtime pay like our agents do. 
we don't get the benefit of law enforcement retirement, although we're clearly part of the law enforcement family at the federal and even uh, working with our state and local colleagues. So it's a little depressing, quite frankly, to have our own agency not compensate us fairly and equally to other attorneys within that agency. If you ask assistant United States attorneys, even those who have left, they'll tell you to the man and woman that being an assistant United States attorney was the best job they ever had. But we all have families, and we all need to take care of our loved ones. More of us are making it a career, but yet we lose. Our retention rate is not very high, quite frankly. And our assistant United States attorneys don't evaporate. They become defense attorneys. So in many ways, the department, by not compensating us fairly and equitably, becomes a training ground for the defense bar, which is, again, not helpful to our own morale. Larry Leiser is president of the National Association of Assistant U.S. Attorneys. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to the association's letter to Congress at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. <laughs> Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.